Hello, church. Welcome to Church Online. We are so glad that you are with us today in this moment. So we're, as we get ready to enter into this gathering, um, I feel like it's important for me to settle down, maybe for you to settle in, uh, because we're wanting to focus on the presence of God. So let's just take a moment to pause together. So you still might be running around the room. So wherever you are, even if you haven't found a seat yet, just pause. Just stay wherever you are. Just take a moment and pause. Let's just be still together. Let's take a deep breath. Just join me in trying to center ourselves with all of our scattered things going on in our head and our senses right now. Let's just center everything on the presence of God, of God this week. I was reflecting on Rosa Park and other ladies who before her made these very public and demonstrative statements about justice and mercy and truth, which led me obviously to an Old Testament passage of scripture called Micah 6.8. And I'd love for you to say this prayer out loud with me right now. It's coming on the screen as we've taken a breath. We're going to be still in this verse of scripture. It's a prayer adapted from Micah 6, 8. It just says this. Pray it with me out loud. Father God, open my eyes, stir my heart, and teach me how to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you today in each day to come. Wow, it's a great verse, great prayer for us just to take some time to center on that we want those things to be true in us. So here at the Gallery Church, it is our desire to be a display of God's greatness. And, and we hope to do that here in this online gathering, but we also hope to do it as a church and how we live our lives throughout this week we truly believe with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength that Jesus is life and that he is also a light that pushes back darkness even today. So if you're new to our church, man, we want to welcome you. We are so honored that you chose to be here with us today. So thankful that you joined us. And we just want to let you know here at the beginning that if you have a prayer need, uh, you can go to the prayer um, tab in our app. And you can submit a prayer request there, or you can email your prayer to us at any time during this gathering at prayer at gcbdowntown.com. And also want to make sure everybody knows everyone is invited to a Zoom lingering time after the gathering. So 10 minutes after the benediction, we gather together in a Zoom room just to uh, share what we've learned, um, ask questions, encourage one another, take the Lord's table together. And if you want to participate in that, there's a link in the description of wherever you're watching this video. And then we do the same Zoom lingering room again at 7.30 p.m. So twice each Sunday, 10 minutes after the premiere that you're watching, or it's 7.30 p.m. at night if you've had a chance to watch the video throughout the day. Just an opportunity for us to gather together. And yes, I know today's the Super Bowl, but we will pause at 7.30 to gather together. And I'm sure many of us will hear the game going on in the back room together. All right. So before we jump into today's teaching, I think it's important for us to enter into a time of generosity 
Because our Father in heaven is generous. He lavished us with generosity through Jesus Christ. Jesus has lavished us with the Holy Spirit. And there is just a generosity to the Father, Son, and Spirit that we want to be true in us. And so we take time now to focus on that generosity. And so would you say this prayer out loud together with me? Father in heaven, there is nothing that I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds. Who, withstanding the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all of the world. Amen. Right now, I'd like to encourage you to take time to give. You can do that through our app. You can give online or you can um, send it to our mailing address. The the ways you can do that are online right now for you to see. I want to invite you to join us in the good work that the Lord is doing through his church in Baltimore. Thank you. And I hope that the rest of this gathering um, brings you great encouragement, strength, equips you, edifies you, and that we can be uh, a light like Christ into all the world. Today we focus on the multiplication of the early church. We're asking the question, what made the early church grow in member, conviction, and courage? Beloved brethren, we are philosophers, not in words, but in deeds. We know virtues by their practice, rather through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. Cyprian Bishop of Carthage, 3rd century. People prefer example before talk. Lactinius, North African church leader, 3rd and 4th century. It is our responsibility to offer our lives to all people for inspection. By our patience and meekness, Christians will draw all people. Justin Martyr, church leader, 2nd century. Christ makes his defense in the lives of his genuine disciples, for their lives cry out the truth. Origin of Alexandria, church theologian, 3rd century. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everybody in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus in Matthew 5. We want to take these words of Jesus seriously. 
We want to live our lives in such a way that it leads others to glorify God, to be a light for others to see through darkness. It actually, in these verses that we just had read to us, sounds a lot like as if the Father in heaven is commanding us to live that way. Um, it sounds like a lot of responsibility, doesn't it? Thinking back on those words, is it in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven? Thinking about that that's the way Jesus was describing this life, faith, what we call Christianity, the church. Wouldn't it be so much more comfortable, easier, if we could just roll with this idea that we could just say something like, don't look at me, just, just look at Jesus. It would be, it, it sounds like it'd be a lot simpler if we could just, just tell people around us, don't look at me, don't look at me, just, 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 just look, look at Jesus. But it's not that simple. And it really isn't. I want us to think about that. This isn't a complicated group of words, or I'm not saying some deep theological word that we need to unpack. It's just the temptation is, is don't look at me, look at Jesus. And according to Jesus's words to his disciples, it's obvious that that's not as simple as it should be. There should be a looking at us aspect of this. The early church called themselves the body of Christ. We're called to be the people that represent Jesus to the entire world. It is so important that we learn to live our lives following after Jesus as a disciple, as a apprentice, as an imitator of him. And, but it seems like it's so much easier for us just to say, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. Don't look at me, just look at Jesus but we are his representatives in the world. So if Jesus hasn't made a difference in your life, well, that's probably where we ought to start today. If there's really no difference in how you live now, then when at some point in time you started attending church or that you stated that you believed in Jesus or maybe that you were baptized and there's no difference in your life, then that's probably a good place for us to kind of lean into today. Because if we truly get Jesus, we're going to be different in this world. So we want to look at the way the early church multiplied today. Like how did they continue to grow and expand around the Mediterranean through all the parts of the Middle East and Southern Europe and North Africa we're not in, in, and I, I want to try to keep it simple as we possibly can, but also I want us to just lean into the areas of tension. But during this month, this month of February, um, we have set aside the month in our nation to look at the history of African Americans and not just unlearn and study, but to look at women and men and even children, how they were pursuing justice and truth and and the ways that mercy should be lived out in our culture in the powerful display of Jesus Christ. And there's so many fantastic examples to our black and brown skin brothers and sisters that setting aside time each week and each day to reflect 
on and to study and to look into their lives, I believe it can help us become more and more in the image of Jesus. So today at the beginning of this teaching, I want to take us um, back to look at three of our um, African uh, brothers, well, brother and two sisters. They were powerful black women, these two ladies, and one of them was a powerful older black man. In order for me to do that, I have to take us back to North Africa around the third century. Perpetua and Felicity were the two ladies, close friends. One was a free woman, one was a servant, but in Jesus, they were sisters. And then the other was an older African man named Saturus, and he was discipling these ladies. And so let me, let me, in order for us to fully understand who they were and what they were going through, let me try to take us there, which is hard many times when we're only using our words. But in order to meet them, we need to go to that third, second, third century around the year 203 to 210 AD in that North Africa, specifically in Carthage. And if you know anything about Roman um, the Roman times and what it was like to be a citizen in Rome, they put a huge emphasis on their amphitheaters. And the amphitheater in Carthage was the second largest amphitheater in all of Rome. And these Roman games were so important to them because it allowed them to demonstrate their power, their their, their prosperity, their privilege, everything about the games were set up for the classes and, and everybody participated no matter what class you were in, but every class had its place. And, and the, the more value you had, the more prestigious your display was at these games. It was a violent society where your status was so important and your gender was incredibly important. There's just too many variants in all of that for me to take time to talk about today. But how people were viewed in culture was on display in this amphitheater and during these games. And so the games would take place and based upon your privilege is where you would sit in the amphitheater and then on the, the, the dirt of the amphitheater floor, gladiators would fight gladiators. And then the next round, gladiators would fight against animals. And then in the next round, animals would fight against criminals. And then whatever was left of those criminals, the gladiators would then come out to finish it all off. But then one day, writers during this time period describe criminals that were acting differently. They didn't behave the same way that other criminals behaved when they would step out onto that dirt. They were supporting one another as the animals attacked them. Perpetua, who was the free woman, and Felicity, who was the slave, they treated each other like sisters, and it was on display in how they handled this awful day, how they loved each other. This older man, Saturus, was on display on that dirt field and how he loved his disciples and his fellow Christians. He was encouraging them even up until their death. The animals had done their worst to them and to the other fellow Christians that were on that gladiator floor. And even when the gladiators came out, they didn't do what normal criminals would do after they had survived the animal attacks. 
They move towards one another as a family, embracing one another. And it even says that they gave one another the kiss of peace, which is a very public symbol of unity and oneness and family and love. And it says, even as Perpetua, because it was the, the, the gladiator that was assigned to kill her obviously was a novice. And in his first attempt, he, 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 he missed just causing excruciating pain. And as she was staring at the audience, the, the description of her gaze at the audience and this gladiator was a gaze that they wrote of was like as if she was preaching a message of love to the audience. And it, it was like they, as a group of criminals, were putting on a public display of forgiveness and love. They were holding no ill will. So these were Christians. These were this early treasonous cult in the Roman Empire, which makes me want to ask, how did they live their lives in their day-to-day that prepared them for this moment of great stress and anxiety and pain that they could support one another with such great love and peace. Like how did they end up doing that and people writing about them with such great power? How could they die the way that they died? How could they have lived their lives to be trained for this day? They obviously had lived a life of preparation. Alan Creter, which uh, I put us, I'm putting, including a slide of the book up. I you know, just have been enjoying this book this month, the, the patient ferment of the early church. I would encourage you, if you want to go deeper into the lives of our brothers and sisters in history, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of this. But this is what Alan says in the book. He says, the sources rarely indicate that the early Christians grew in number because they won arguments. Instead, they grew because their habitual behavior, rooted in patience, was distinctive and intriguing. Did you hear that? Instead, they didn't win arguments, but they grew because their habitual behavior, which was rooted in patience, was distinctive and intriguing. This should be encouraging to us because um, we don't have to be masterful evangelists or capable orators in order to be significant in the kingdom of God. We can just live patient and devoted to truth lives, and it is going to be attractive to the people around us. Live like Jesus is what they were doing in the early aspect of the church. Alan goes on to say this about them. When challenged about their ideas, Christians pointed to their actions. They believed that their habitus, their embodied behavior was eloquent. Their behavior said what they believed and it was an enactment of their message. So let me tell you a little bit more about this older man, Sardis, for a moment, because what the sisters did in their testimony um, is powerful, but I want you to understand the level of love and commitment that they had in their discipleship relationship because the story is told that the two ladies were arrested first. And uh, um, 
Sartorus, Saturus, sorry, Saturus, uh, my best pronunciation of these words or these names. I want to do them honor. He had been discipling these ladies for several years, preparing them for baptism and um, their, their, their leadership in the church, but they were arrested before they could be baptized. And it says that in, in church history that he went to the jailer and turned himself in so he could continue to disciple them while they were in captivity, while they were prisoners. He wanted to go through what they were going through so that he could help them to see how Jesus would act in that very same situation. But he didn't want to just tell them through prison bars. He wanted to be on the other side with them. He wanted to go through everything that they were going through. And even while they were in prison, there was an opportunity and it was the highlight of his ministry when he had a chance to baptize Perpetua while they were still in prison. And so here, let me give you a quick testimony of what came out of this. There's a story written uh, about Prudence, who was one of the Roman guards, that he became a believer. And when basically he was asked what won him over to believe in Jesus, this is what he said. What I witnessed in their moments of weakness was a great power. It was the aura of God on them. So this Roman soldier had spent so much time with them and he couldn't resist joining in what they believed because of the power of their testimony, what he was observing in their behavior and how they acted, how they received and gave forgiveness, how they loved in the midst of Tormont, their light was shining. An aura of God was around them so much so that this Roman soldier couldn't help but believe. Justin Martyr, who also was writing around this time, this is um, something that many of you that have been going to church for a while may have heard, but a powerful quote. It's on the screen for you. Many who were once on your side have turned from the ways of violence and tyranny overcome by observing the consistent lives of their Christian neighbors or noting the strange patience of their insulted or injured acquaintances or experiencing the way they did business with them. Did you hear that? It was not just their words. It was the observation of their consistent lives with their neighbors, noting their patience through the insults, through the physical injuries, and how they chose to do business on a daily basis with other people around them. So they were different. They acted different under the normal Roman stimulus and the ways that culture was pushing them. They had learned to be different. The way they ran their businesses says, you're different. Why are you different? Powerful question. Why are you different? This next description isn't very deep theologically, and it may sound elementary or maybe way simple, but the way historians call the expansion of the early church through these first few centuries was two simple words, casual contact. That does not sound very theological or deep or like you would learn it at seminary, but it's like, it's like our faith in Jesus could be understood 
on a child's level or on a PhD level. And the word that historians describe this gospel going out, this good news, this multiplication of the church was casual contact. Most historians say that this is how the early church grew. Casual contact. So what can we learn from these powerful women What can we learn from this older discipling brother? Where do we go in scripture to even find out how to begin to do this in our church? Where can this kind of encouragement be found? They won people over through the consistent lives of the ways they lived around their neighbor. I think one of the amazing passages for us to step into this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I think it's good for others. All of it is good, but I want to start in verses 12 through 17. And while you're finding it or clicking on the Bible app or you're opening your Bible, I do believe that there are going to be so many other passages. Well, I I do. I, I believe. I don't say I do believe. It's like, no, present tense. I believe that there are a lot of other verses that we could use to support today. And they're in the notes for us to study and to reflect on this week but I also believe that it's that scientists have proven that in order for us to retain things, we have to marinate in them and or meditate on them. And a lot of times that requires us to have physical objects. So a journal and a pen, an open Bible, a place to write, a place to doodle, something in front of us physically to help us get this in. And I should have said this in week one, and I'm waiting till week six. And my desire is, is that we'll, you'll go back over these six weeks and meditate on all six teachings and looking at the notes that then even expanded the subject matter further, because I truly believe this is who we are to be as a church. And while I've changed subjects just for a moment, I just want to give another foreshadowing to where we start going next week. Peacemaker, with like this question mark, this peacemaker, making sense of the violence in the Bible. We're going to be spending seven weeks looking at how bloodshed and violence and anger and fear and these words of intimidation in the scriptures are dealt with and how the church has, and what I believe in many times, misquoted, misrepresented, taught with evil or even poorly verses that have been taken out of context that have destroyed the consistent testimony of neighbor to neighbor love that we should have had all along. And so I just want you to stay tuned and stay with us on this journey towards Easter as we start the series called Peacemaker. All right, so verse 12, let's go here. Verse 12, we work hard with our own hands. And I love that. Not idleness, not couch potatoes. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. Do you, do you, do you hear this? They're working hard with their hands. That means their physical body is engaged. Our faith in Jesus isn't just mental, where it's just logical, where we process in our mind. They are working hard. So when they're cursed, they've been working hard to bless. And when they're persecuted, they've been working hard to endure. I even read one account that the early church fasted in preparation 
for being deprived of food because of their faith in Jesus. So they were conditioning themselves to go long periods of time without food so they could maintain a Christ-like testimony through the midst of hunger pains. We endured it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as a as dear children. Look at this family relationship. Paul was feeling like a spiritual father to these people, and he loved them like he loved dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel, this rich family love. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Paul saying to them, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He sent Timothy to help them imitate Paul because Paul was saying, I'm imitating Jesus. And they're trying to set up a pattern of imitation. And Timothy is going to help them make sense of why Paul is living and teaching and acting the way he is. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. So this is how they cultivated this word I stumbled with earlier in Alan's teaching, in Alan's book, the quote, habitus. This is how they cultivated habitus. So what is habitus? What does it mean? It's socially ingrained habits and dispositions. The way individuals perceive the social world around them and react to it. Cultivated reflexes acquired through imitation, story, and repetition. Cultivated reflexes. Did you hear that? Habitus is an intentional set of practices. So the early Christians, we can look more at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I encourage you to jot that down. Go back and read it uh, more intently this week or even later today. Believe that they were new. So the early church believed that they were given a new heart, that they were new people. They weren't just becoming better versions of themselves. It's like they got a heart transplant, which in the culture of that day meant that they basically got a entire upgrade of thought and life and soul and, and, and understanding. And it's Paul is saying to them that they were working hard at it. So it wasn't like they got the new heart and they were just waiting for that new heart to pump blood throughout the body. They were also doing something that was like from the outside in. So there's an inside out movement, movement, and then there's an outside in movement. And they were working together with God's spirit to bring that new heart, that new life out into the public where people could see it. They didn't just believe that they needed to meditate and to dream in private um, about their relationship with Jesus and just let that be the work. Like, let me just go into my quiet place and meditate. And then I'm just going to go out and act however I want to act or do whatever I want to do. But I had my quiet place. They weren't just dreaming about a distant time where pain and death were no longer going to be present for them. They were working in their present tense physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually to create inside of them the image of Jesus Christ. And they knew they had 
to work at it. So here's, uh, here's, here's my thought on the screen for you. If you believe Jesus to be true, you are choosing to behave in line with what you know to be true of Jesus. So we believe in Jesus. We then choose to act like Jesus, cultivating habitus intentionally. Teach. And I love that way Jesus ended the, um, his words to the disciples before they went into the upper room and the ascension had taken place. The, Matthew's gospel ends with Jesus saying, teach them to obey all that I've commanded. He wanted them to learn all that he commanded so that they could put it into practice even after he was gone. So let me give you a personal example of what I mean by habitus. And this is, and this actually may be shocking for my mom. I mentioned that she's been watching and, um, and this has been very personal. So when I talk about family, it's easy for me to talk through this, but she even may even remember this, but before I really started following Jesus, my junior year of high school, I had believed in Jesus as an upper elementary school student around 11 years of age, where I really felt like I was confessing I was following Jesus, but I really didn't start acting in my new heart with my physical contribution to join into that until I was a junior in high school. And I love sports. I love baseball. I love soccer. And I also would cuss when I got angry and especially in sports. And it was terrible. And my mom would have said that I had a potty mouth, if that's a phrase that you might be familiar with. And so between my sophomore year and my junior year of high school, I changed schools from a public school to a private school because the private school played more baseball games than the public school did and had a higher level of competition. So I was super excited about the opportunity to play more competitive baseball, but I wanted to stay in shape. So I played soccer so I could run and be outside and enjoy my time with friends. And I really did enjoy being a goalie in soccer. I love being able to shut down uh, the aggressive attack from the attack on the other team. And I believe it was my first day of practice that we were doing a drill where the attackers were coming and they were shooting at the goal. And I can remember distinctly, I was diving to my left and I had lost my positioning in the goalie box. And as I was diving to block the shot, my head went head first into the goal post. And I don't know exactly what I said. But I know that it came out in with such volume and such shock that all of my soccer team stopped moving and were looking at me. And the girls team that was on the field next to ours stopped. And the JV team that was on the sides of the fields running their drills stopped. And everyone in this open field area was now staring at me. And I can remember my coach came over to me knelt down next to me, put his hand on my shoulder. And he's like, Ellis, are you okay? And I'm like, oh, coach, I got a knot in my head. And then he says, Ellis, he says, um, in case you haven't noticed, I can still hear my coach say this almost verbatim. You aren't in public school anymore. Uh, you're going to have to clean that up. Uh, no room for that kind of language here. And that really was a shocking moment for me that it really revealed what was really inside of me and that was coming out under great stress and tension. And that sent me on a serious tongue training commitment that I made between myself and the Lord and obviously wanting to make that commitment to the school that I was representing. 
And so if I stump, if I stubbed my toe in my room or did something like where I was walking in the middle of the night and hit my shin on something like we do all the time, I would intentionally say kinder things or I would intentionally bite my tongue and went through stages of trying to condition myself when I was in private as well as when I was in public because I knew that in the little things it would lead to the big things. And so six years later, I'm now 22 years old. I'm a pastor in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm working with one of the youth workers in the church where I was serving. And we were framing up in this construction site on the church property and with a full swing of the hammer, trying to drive a 16 penny nail into a hard piece of wood. If that means anything to you, that you'll just know that's not a small nail. It's not a nail you hang a picture frame on the wall. This is a large framing nail and a large framing hammer. It's not like the little hammer you have in your kitchen drawer in your condo. This is a framing hammer, full swing as hard as I could. I strike the end of my thumb squarely right on the nail. I'm on an elevated ladder a few feet off the ground. I fall off the ladder, grabbing my thumb. Blood is pouring down my hand. My nail is already off of my finger. And I am just rolling around in pain on the floor. And my friend that was with me on the project, his words to me were, wow, Ellis, you didn't cuss. It's like, if I would have done that, I would have been screaming all kinds of words right now. But for six years, it was my habitus. I'd been disciplining myself so that under distress and circumstances of all kinds, I would control the words that came out of my mouth. I had been disciplining myself to act in the small things and to act in the big things, no matter what pressure was facing me. And I don't remember if it was Alan or Bruxy who said this, but it stuck with me. They actually said this, we do the things we can so we can do the things we can't. Let that set on you just for a moment. We do the things we can so we can do the things we can't. That is habitus. That is what the early church was doing daily, disciplining themselves in how they did business how they responded to insults, how they responded to injury, how they shared their food, how they shared their possessions, how they cared for the sick, how they cared for the healthy, how they sang their songs, how they read their scriptures, what they memorized. Every little discipline was their habitus so that the stress that they were under, um, like Perpetuous and Felicity and uh, in, in Sar Sardis, they, they were... They, they had been conditioning themselves so that they were on that awful dirt floor. They could represent Jesus Christ. We do the things we can so we can do the things we can't. So examples from the early church. These are things that I pulled from the history books, um, like the patient ferment of the early church, as well as some of the testimonies in scripture. Here's just a list of things that I think the early church was doing to cultivate habitus in their lives. They memorized, meditated on, and murmured the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's really important we understand this murmuring because they didn't have printed copies like you and I do. 
but they would just go around reciting it and, and, and saying it quietly and like a murmur in the room as they were trying to frame themselves around that Matthew 5, 6, and 7. They, they would commit in certain centuries, like especially around the time of the second century in North Africa, is as a part of their baptism, they would take time to memorize Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So they could try to recite it as closely as they could in public, because that's the type of life they wanted to live and what they were immersing themselves into. They memorized and meditated on and murmured the Isaiah 2, 2 through 25 and Micah 4, 1 through 5, which was talking about the future when the Messiah was going to reign, how people were going to respond to one another, how they were going to turn weapons of warfare into farming tools and how people weren't even going to practice fighting anymore because there was not going to need a need for fighting anymore. They were memorizing and meditating on these powerful passage out of Isaiah and Micah. Um, they were meeting together regularly. We can find that all throughout the New Testament. They were worshiping through singing and saying praises. And then what I reference in the story in that amphitheater in Carthage, when they walked out, they gave each other the kiss of peace. This is one thing I wish it wasn't so awful in our culture was this the sexual side of our culture and so much has just been perverted and the ways that men and women or even men and men and women and men can interact um this brotherly love this um this spiritual kiss so to speak has been removed from our culture i can remember being in egypt a few years ago just watching friendships with holding of hands and kissing one another in church where I was like, man, I really wish that we could transpose that over into the church culture in America today. And maybe we as a church can re-experience this kiss of peace that shows equality in the family, um, a free person and a slave kissing one another because they're equal in God's eyes and in the eyes of each other as family. They also prayed out loud and physically. So they were physically working towards the new heart inside of them. So they weren't just quietly meditating. They practiced out loud physical prayers. And I want us to grow in that where we can raise our hands and not be embarrassed thinking, what are other people going to think about me? And or just thinking, I don't have to do all that. God knows my heart. God knows my mind. God knows my soul. It's like, yes, the early church felt the very same way, but they wanted to engage in this habitus that would prepare them for the most intense persecution that was coming so that they could praise the Lord in the good and the bad, the, the easy and the hard. And so they physically engaged in out loud praying and practiced it with hands and physical expression on the floor, raised up, walking around. They just, they learned to physically express themselves. They were prepared for hardship through fasting. I mentioned this earlier, but they would literally take time to fast in preparation for times where they would be without food so that they could be physically, mentally, and spiritually prepared to show Jesus's love even when they were physically deprived of food. They went through these things of like these spiritual cleansings of puffs of breath. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, what is that? And I was thinking that myself and I was reading this and I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. They so believed that the Holy Spirit, which 
the spirit of God, which is this Greek word pneuma, which is breath, was inhabiting them. And so any time they felt spiritual darkness around them, they would, they would take the air that was inside of them and push it out to to the air around them because they knew that the air, the spirit that was in them was greater than anything that was around them. And so anytime they felt spirits of darkness, they would puff. Man, powerful physical practice. They cross themselves regularly. A lot of people think that the physical act of crossing themselves was just a Catholic thing, but that predates the Catholic church. It was a early Christian practice for them in the midst of their day to recenter themselves on Jesus. And so the stimulus that was coming, whether in a business deal or an interaction in their family or a need, is they would cross themselves to remember Jesus and what Jesus would do. They also um, would, would do small mental reminders. They would, it, things like they would have phrases they would simply say, like, I'm a Christian. Like they would literally stop out loud in the middle of a moment and say, I'm a Christian. How should I respond? Like they would remind themselves of where their belief and their identity was. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. And they develop these physical practices into their daily life. They also regularly participated in financial giving. I know it's difficult for us in a lot of ways, but they... They, in our culture, in our society, we don't share and live in the same proximities um, with people in need like the first century would have, but they found great joy in giving and it was helping them in giving little to help them at moments give a lot under the right circumstances they were prepared to give. They visited those that were in need, the sick, the hungry, the imprisoned, there's powerful stories of ways that they did that in the early church. Their hospitality was amazing. They were welcoming. They gave food. They provided lodging to strangers. They had incredible amounts of hospitality that was conditioning them to act right towards people that were evil and violent towards them. They were working out their habitus to be more like Jesus. And then they participated in beautiful baptism service, um, amazing Eucharist moments. And they, and I skipped over one that was um, in the outline. I want to go back to it. It's this agape love feast where they would literally just have moments where they would all come together, rich and poor, Jew, Gentile, slave and free. And they would come together and share a feast just to celebrate the love of God through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, point blank to the church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The Greek word is imitus, but the English word is mimic. So we get the word mimic from this word imitate here. Mimic me as I mimic Christ. I want us to all admit right now that we don't do this perfectly. Like, I would love for you to feel like you can mimic me. Actually, I, I even pray over this next year that as we walk out this sermon series together, there becomes a stronger 
mimicking relationship between us where the trust and the encouragement and the, 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 the spiritual authority that is found in the way that Jesus has empowered us can be lived out amongst us because we are still looking at the example of Jesus because the example of Jesus was found in John 5, 19 through 20, where he modeled for the disciples what Paul is saying to the church when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, because Jesus was the first imitator. In verse 19, it says, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. The father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So what is Jesus admitting to them? He's only doing what he watches his father do. And so what did the disciples do? We only do what we see Jesus doing. And then what was Paul doing? Let me just tell you, do what you see in me because I'm only doing what I see in Jesus. And we've got to get back to that type of relationship in the church. How well are we doing this amongst ourselves? We need to have a view into one another's lives. I think this is one of the challenges in our culture, especially under the pandemic. How do we even see into each other's lives so that we can see if we're actually mimicking Jesus in the choices and how we live? Especially in a culture right now where we value our privacy probably more than anybody. Like we, we have ways of getting in and out without being seen. And we have this barrier set up where I act one way at church, but then I can go home and I can be myself. There's very little visibility between us. And if we are going to imitate Jesus, we're going to develop habits as we need one another and we have to increase visibility. And I only see two ways that we can do this. There's only two simple responses. The first is, is we have to move in together. It's like, how do we live together? Like, what would it look like for us to move in together? Now, some of us, that's, that's a slight extreme thought of moving into a, a room in Pastor Ellis's house or moving into a, a room at, like us just all buying a building and all going into it together when we increase our habitus, our ability to interact with one another. But another way that we can do this, which some of you have done the moving in thing, and it's fantastic what God is doing in those moments. But the other thing that I think we can do is we can actually just literally start being open and honest with each other. Stop hiding in the darkness. Stop only telling our hubs in our growth communities, just a low level view of what's going on in our lives. We have got to open up with our sins and our failures and our fears and our moments of brokenness, as well as our moments of praise and our moments of joy and our moments of celebration. But we've got to either move in together. We've got to become a whole lot more open and honest with one another and become truth tellers to one another. And that is a great place for that to start in our growth communities and in our hubs that I, that I know we're trying to move us towards. So what's the next step? So here's, here's the phrase, and I don't mean this to sound insulting, but there is a reason why these idioms exist. You don't have to be an Einstein to develop habitus. We don't have to be an Einstein to multiply the church, but it is like exercise. Everybody can do it at some level, some level of exercise but we choose not to do it. 
In our faith, we can't choose not to do it. It's not because it's too hard. Like the other phrase that a lot of people use, it's not rocket science or it's not like it's rocket science. The implication is, is that rocket science is really hard. And there are very few people that can build a rocket. So what I'm asking you to do is very simple. So you don't have to be a rocket science. You don't have to be an Albert Einstein to be able to do this. We can go into simple practices that everybody can do in order to get the outcome of looking like Jesus. And so how do we do that in the gallery church? The first thing is, is we have these Sunday services online currently. Hopefully in the near future, we'll have some more physical expression, but there will be a heavy online atmosphere to how we teach and pray and worship together. The next thing that we do is we get involved in growth communities. This is where friendship and study and application can take place. We are now encouraging you. The new element is a hub. We are looking to get everybody identified into groups of two, three, four, maybe five in a hub. And some of you are like, well, that's my growth community right now. So small. Well, great. We're going to start your growth community out as a hub and then eventually add more hubs. But right now, the important factor is, is can I be open and honest and a truth teller to these people? Urgently important we develop that into the life of our church family. Whether you're here for a year or you might be here for longer, as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple, this is what disciples do. Spiritual friendships accountability, encouragement that are built in the fact that we tell each other the truth. We are also putting more emphasis in the type of notes that we're putting in the app for you. There's ways in which you can study deeper. You can add other physical elements like a journal and a Bible and pens and whatever else you need, a candle, something that will help you memorize and meditate so that you can murmur this scriptures, the the words of Jesus out for others, the notes, there's daily practices of prayer that we've added to our daily window. And we're going to be expanding that with some new thoughts of ways that we can encourage you to daily pause and to remember these ways of saying, I'm a Christian or a way of crossing ourselves throughout the day to remind us of who we are and how we can respond in the simple things of life and the hard things of life. We can also continue to regularly give financially. That is a way that we can do this together, disciplining ourselves, detaching from the things of this world and attaching our things to the things of heaven. We can participate in baptism. That's a step many of you need to take. In our Zoom lingerings, we're taking the Lord's table, the Eucharist together. There's times in the past we've been together, we've been able to wash each other's feet, serve each other. Right now we're delivering food to families. We need to be actively involved in these things because under these circumstances, circumstances. It's conditioning us so that when things get harder than what they are, we will still reflect Jesus Christ because we've been preparing ourselves for it. We're also going to be advertising to you dates for our new essentials and intentional living classes and other moments where we can pause and be together. These are ways that we as a church are trying to develop this habitus, this commitment to physically engaged with the new heart that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Will you join me in partnering with the Holy Spirit to complete the formation of Jesus Christ in us? Imitation, mimic. Let's do all that we can 
to be family, to work with the Holy Spirit on the disciplines we need so that no matter the stimulus on our life, we can look like Jesus Christ. Will you follow me into this new year as we look to act like Jesus? Could you imagine if somebody was to write about us Those brothers and sisters loved each other so much. They were faithful in the little things. They were faithful in business. They were faithful in neighborly relationships. They were faithful in pandemics. They were faithful in persecution. Those people glowed. There was an aura of the spirit of Christ on them. They glue like bright lights. That could be the powerful testimony of the Gallery Church. Let's take some time to pray together. Father, thank you. Father, your Holy Spirit is free to move in us. Show us what we need to see and give us the strength to obey. Father, we believe in Jesus, therefore we want to obey. We believe in Jesus, therefore we want to look like Jesus. Father, we don't want to take the easy road. We want to do the hard work so that no matter what our circumstances, we can look like Christ. Help us to complete that mission, Father. And then we are grateful that we can do that with the promises of Jesus Christ. Amen. We want to invite you to respond to the word of God that we just received. We know that he is speaking and working in our hearts. Where do you see yourself shining a light through casual contact? Have you seen people around you come to faith in Jesus Christ through how you live and do business? Let's pause together and listen to the Holy Spirit. What is he saying to you? How is your habitus? Where are you disciplining yourself for the challenges ahead? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you about your disciplines to develop a more resilient faith? Jesus modeled for us a way of imitating as a tool of discipleship. He did what he saw his father do. Paul told the early church to imitate him as he tried to imitate Jesus Christ. How do you receive this? Would you say these words, imitate me as I imitate Jesus, to someone you spend time with? Ask the Holy Spirit to minister to you now, no matter how you respond to the challenge. Let's respond to the Holy Spirit, acknowledge his work in us, and celebrate that we are lavishly loved by our Father in heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ.
As we come to the end of the gathering, let me give you a couple of quick announcements and then we'll move towards our benediction. Uh, the first announcement is I just want to remind us about the Peacemaker series. It's, it's very important. It's actually a series that many of your friends may want to join you in. They might be interested in the subject. They may already, whether they believe in Jesus or not, have things that they think about violence in the Bible and Christianity that would be beneficial for you to join in that journey together with them. So use the series not only for your own good, but maybe for the opportunity to develop further conversations with the people um, that, that are your neighbors or the people that are close to you. Um, looking forward to this series and a lot of prayer and efforts going into it and uh, really believe God's going to do something special in it. Uh, a Announcement from Ginger, my wife, to you ladies. Ginger's excited to host uh, an evening for some Galentine's Fun and Fellowship. She's going to be hosting a Moments for Ladies on Saturday, February the 13th at 7 p.m. on Zoom. So that's going to be a Galentine's Fun and Fellowship on Saturday, February the 13th at 7 p.m. on Zoom. If you're interested in joining, even if you're not 100% sure that you can join, please email ginger at gprints at gcbalt.com ASAP so she can get a count and plan accordingly. Uh, she also wants to get out some very important details to you. So RSVP today, if you can, to um, email Ginger. And men, I just want to say something to you as well. As Ginger and I were talking about this, we felt like it was going to be important for us to step into something for you men as well. So we're going to have a moment for dudes I'm excited to be hosting this night of fun and excitement and fellowship for us. So moment for dudes. Okay, moment for men. But I think moment for dudes sounds better on Monday night, February the 15th at 8 p.m. on Zoom. So if you're interested, whether you can 100% commit or not, if it at least interests you, would you email me at eprints at gallery church or excuse me, eprints at gcbalt.com. And that way I can get some information out to you and plan accordingly. So RSVP to me today. So moments for, for ladies, moments for men, February 13th, February 15th, ladies at 7 p.m., men at 8 p.m. All right, benediction. Let's take a deep breath. Let's go back to where we started. Wow, I just want to center my scattered brain. Hopefully your scattered brain can be centered here as we end this gathering. And remember, after the benediction, about 10 minutes, Zoom link is in the description uh, for us to have a Zoom lingering together. Okay, our benediction. As we go from here today, may we exercise our faith in the little things, the daily practices, our business, and in our interactions with our neighbors. May we focus, imitate, excuse me, may we focus on imitating Jesus Christ on the easy days and on the hard days. And may we find it becoming easier and easier to display the truth of Jesus in our lives, even when we're persecuted or falsely accused. And may the word of God feed us through the power of his Holy Spirit. And may we join him in the labor of developing habits that withstand the pressures of this life. May God's grace and peace be with you. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you in 10 minutes or at 7.30 p.m.